It's the True Penny Show with your host, James True Penny. Hello, and welcome to the True Penny Show. My name is James True This is my show, and as you probably guessed, this isn't my usual effusive introduction because today we're talking about the passing of the legendary Antonio Inoki, founder of New Japan for a wrestling legend of the JWA, and and. I guess it's not too far a stretch to say the guy that revolutionized professional wrestling with strong style and essentially began the journey to what would become mixed martial arts. And to join me to discuss this gentleman is Mr. John Dinsdale. How are you today, sir? I am, well, I'm doing well, but it's a bit of a bleak show topic. It is. we're, We're talking about the death of one of the few people you can really call a wrestling pioneer these days. Like... There was Onita, Anoki, Baba, and Bret Hart, and only two of those are still going. Yeah, I think so. It's um, yeah, it's a it's a bit of a sad old do, but we're going to try and inject some fun into this because there's some good matches we've done. With I've done a selection of ten matches that kind of summed up Inoki. Um, if you want to talk more about like his style and his legacy, myself and Chelsea six years ago, at the very beginning of Beginner's Guys to Japanese Wrestling, did a show together based around Inoki. And, um, you know, back then Chelsea wasn't a, a bigger Japanese wrestling fan it is now. So if, if you want something there as a take where she kind of was watching it cold and she was introduced to Inoki in, in the space of a week, if you see what I mean. So it's an interesting take to see what an outsider sees of this particular wrestler. Um, and we've selected 10 matches to talk about, which, uh, as usual, I've kind of spaced them out over a period of time of him being at the top of his game to the end of his career and tried to find the biggest stars that I could see that he was wrestling against. And there's some big title matches to talk about. We, of course, had to include Antonio Inoki versus Muhammad Ali. It was the very first time I watched that match this morning. And we found some oddities as well, because if you look hard enough, There will always be an oddity from somewhere, and it's usually from Mexico. And we have an oddity to share with you today. But we start with the legendary tag team of B.I. Cannon. Of course, B for Baba, I for Inoki, Cannon for shooting, I guess. (laughs) But there wasn't much shooting in this. This is a um, tag team title match for the uh, NWA International Tag Team Championships in the JWA in 1971. It looks like the old Corican Hall, I guess. I suppose the Corican Hall nowadays is a small hall, which we all love because it's where the home of professional wrestling is. Back then, it was a big baseball sports arena. Um, this is a big match. It's a sellout. It's incredibly male, unlike a New Japan show you would see today. And this is going up against uh, Mil Mascaris, one of the legendary wrestlers of, the, of that era, and Spirus Arion, another legendary wrestler of that area, who I'd never actually seen wrestle before, but heard an awful lot about because he was a big British wrestling star as well as being an international star as well. So let's have a chat about this, John. What do you think of this match? Because this is kind of the antithesis of what you like. (laughs) I mean, I'm no sort of grouch when it comes to the more technical, traditional side of wrestling. Sure, I like very violent and fast-paced shit, but... I can appreciate the sort of style that got everyone to the dance, and this is very much that sort of 
very deliberate, very paced, very measured sort of professional wrestling match where there is a lot of grappling, a lot of ground game, and a lot of... It's kind of one-upmanship in the sense of, I can grapple you like this, you're not going to escape, and I'll do it again and again and again until you finally escape. And then guess what? I have three more grapples ready for you. (laughs) And... Considering I recognised everyone in this match, again, much like you, it was the first time I'd ever actually seen Spurious Aryan wrestle, despite hearing the name. It's, yeah, it's perfectly serviceable for what it is. It's not 100% my cup of tea, but I didn't turn it off. No, but you can definitely see the, the drawing attraction that Noki and Barbara are kind. Oh, 100%. Everyone is loving what they see. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's this charisma there from both of them. Obviously, at this point, um, both of them debuted on the same day. It was actually the 50th anniversary of their debut. Is it the 60th anniversary of their debut? Like the day before Inoki died. Um, and it was uh, this particular point, Inoki had... Uh, gone to the J- started with the JWA under the auspices of Ricky Dozan, along with Baba. Uh, he'd gone off on an excursion to the United States of America, as wrestlers still do. He came back to Japan and wrestled for Tokyo Pro Wrestling, not Tokyo Joshi Pro Wrestling, a predecessor company which had a very similar name. And when that company went under, he went back to JWA. Because in those days, if you went off on your excursion, you weren't guaranteed a job when you came back. <laughs> they didn't even pay you. You had to make your own bookings and make your own way. They only started paying people quite recently when, you know, people like uh, Tarzan Goto went off, did his excursion, and then signed with FMW instead of All Japan. <laughs> <laughs> um, even though, you know, Baba was quite happy for him to go to FMW. There was a meeting and, and things. But, um, yeah, this was a very different time period. Anyway, Inoki came back, and him and Baba formed this tag team. And with the passing of Ricky Dozan in 1963, they became the guys. The NWA International Tag Team titles are still defended. They're part of the dual uh, tag belts championship in age all Japan Pro Wrestling, along with the PBF Tag Team Championships. The only uh, world tag team, sorry, the only world title all Japan have ever defended, actually, ever um, categorized ever. They always said their tag team championships were the true world tag team championships because of people like holding like Baba and Inoki. And this match kind of gives you an overview of what Japanese wrestling in the early 70s was like. It's very much, if you put this tag match on in Walthamstow Town Hall, it would go down a storm. It's just that kind of technical chess match wrestling. And you can tell, though, though Baba is like no slouch when it comes to chain wrestling, which is a bit of a surprise when you realize that, but this is kind of very much very technically orientated, but it, it's of a style, isn't it? You can see where Inoki's developing his own patterns. You can see the sort of split between the two where Baba is obviously a lot more physical because his size dictates that, and Inoki is there for the, the grappling, the ground game, and a lot more of the... I don't know how the best way to describe it is because you can't take away from Baba. He's still doing brilliantly here with what he does. It's Anoki's the glue and Baba's the cannon. Yeah, that's it. That's the thing. I think it's like 
Enoki's like Baba's on the apron. He's the if if you if you put it up to the British Bulldogs um, Heart Foundation powerhouse and technician kind of tag team, Baba's the powerhouse and Enoki's the technician. What did you think of uh, of Spurios Arian? Because it's like. I heard so much about him, but it's difficult to get a hold on what he's capable of in this match because he's on the defensive so much. Yeah, he's very much sort of there to be not the whipping post, but he's the one that he's sort of brought in and then instantly has to just defend himself because everyone else has sort of. <laughs> it's like Mascaris is just like, right, I don't, I don't want to be defending here. You can take over. Yeah, I think that's the thing. But unsurprisingly, Mill Mascaris uh, not showing showing off his uh, technical skills. <laughs> it's all about Mill Mascaris. Yeah, this has been happening for quite some time. Um, but yeah, no, this is, I think it's an interesting match, and just in that sense of like you watch a lot of the JWA stuff from this era, and this is kind of like where the main event scene had quite fully developed. And you know it's it's full on quiet crowds and um, yeah I'm just watching it as we're as we're as we're talking about it and like Arion goes in for a tag and Mask goes no you're doing fine <laughs> you'll be alright you'll be alright don't worry about it keep going be fine um, there's it, it's very much kind of like the classic Japanese wrestling match a technical chess match between four wrestlers with a very very male crowd who aren't making much noise. But you can certainly see what Enoki's doing as far as like trying to develop. Oh, this is actually on Mill Mastress's official YouTube channel as well. I did not realize that. He has an official YouTube channel. I'm just kind of like I, I didn't I didn't notice that I <laughs> I'm just kind of like amazed at like the idea of Mill Mastress, 88-year-old Mill Mastress sat there on a laptop curating his YouTube playlists. <laughs> I think that would be great. Okay, should we move on to the next one? Because the next one's kind of big match wrestling and we're into New Japan, aren't we? Yeah, this is pretty cool. This is very cool. This is 1974. We skipped along in a couple of years. Anoki had left the JWA or had been fired from the JWA after a supposed coup attempt to take over, which in reality, from the bits you read about, would actually involve Giant Baba, but because Baba was the slightly bigger star and they needed to keep one of them, you know, he was essentially scapegoated and was made to start, made to be fired. So he started his own company, which was King of Sports New Japan Pro Wrestling. And for him, he managed to get together a deal with the WWF. He wanted to be associated with the NWA um, because obviously the lineage and that was the bigger uh kind of association at the time the nwa world championship back then would have been on probably on um uh jerry, jerry briscoe or harley race one of the two um and you know that was the big association but all japan started the babble was good friends with harley race and sam mushnik and and uh, um all of the nwa main contenders so they got the association and Inoki worked on building relationships with the WWE and who was the biggest star in the, the universe of the WWF was it was or sorry the worldwide wrestling federation back then it was Andre the Giant and Andre ends up in New Japan Pro Wrestling to challenge for the NWF World's Heavyweight Championship the NWF was a independent well 
it wasn't an NWA affiliated promotion in uh, upstate New York, which had a lot of the same talents as WWF, including John Rods, who was a trainer for the WWF, and Johnny Rods was a former NWF champion. He was the one that lost to Antonio Inoki. And um, the NWF title became the top title in New Japan Pro Wrestling. And WWF didn't mind because they had you know, a fair bit of crossover with the, with, uh, the NWF promotion in, in upstate New York. And Inoki carried that belt for the rest of the 70s. And it was this top prize in New Japan Pro Wrestling and in the associated promotions in North America. We will see the NWF title being defended in the United States later. But here we have Andre the Giant and Antonio Inoki. And you start to see the pageantry that New Japan becomes famous for down the years with a rendition of the Japanese national anthem and a national anthem that was neither Stars and neither La Marseillaise, nor was it the Star Spangled Banner. I'm not sure what anthem they were playing for Andre. He seemed to enjoy it though. He probably just thought he said, oh, play this. And like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like he's coming around the, the American flag for Andre, who's French. <laughs> and the three Japanese flags for Inoki. But this is um, kind of the big match attraction at the time. It was kind of a thing Babel would do more in the sense of, you know, big American name. But Andre was name value. And Andre at this particular point in 1974 was absolutely at the top of his game. He'd moved out of his um, phase as a technical wrestler started to put weight on and would become a monster and in North America he was a babyface attraction and Vince McMahon senior realized when he got hold of him you just don't keep him in one place because Andre had learned in France and then gone to Canada and the Canadian promoters had just promoted him to death and everyone got sick of him because he's Andre um, and then Vince McMahon senior would send him on the road to all of his affiliated promotions and you know that he would wrestle the top heel, and and that would how that's how he made money. He was an attraction. He would stay for a couple of weeks, work his way up to the top heel, wrestle top heel, and go on to the next territory, and come back when Vincent Mancini needed him. In this particular case, as he was at the time, he was going over to New Japan a lot, and was kind of more of a serious wrestler. And this match kind of shows that it's a very sporting wrestling affair. Andre's working as a subtle heel in this match. He's not a full-on heel. I believe that's Arnold Scarland who's there, he's managing him. So yeah, it's interesting that Arnold Scarland's always a babyface manager. What's your thoughts on this one, John? I actually really enjoyed this match. It, as you said, Andre is kind of its peak. Anoki's having to work around Andre's significant height advantage, and there's just a lot of sporting with a bit of pageantry and some theatrics. It's very just competitive wrestling and it, it sort of goes to remind everyone that before he was a monster Andre was probably better than a lot of the technical wrestlers <laughs> he used in the to, companies when, he worked in when he was when he was first started he used to throw a flying head scissors you know he could drop kick he was pretty handy you know he was because he was trained by a lot he was trained by obviously a lot of the French wrestlers were very aerial they were doing a lot of aerial stuff long before anybody else was because they liked that fast-paced junior heavyweight style and andre kind of watched what wrestling is so i'll do that <laughs> one of the most terrifying things you will ever see 
A man of Andre's height just flying at you for a head scissors. <laughs> and especially when you think about like, how did he clear his own head to get the head scissors to go around? But there you go. That's the thing. Oh, yeah, hey, even Big Daddy had a media drawer lock. He knew how to go if he wanted to. It was kind of a part of the deal. Sometimes you'd have to do chain wrestling. I have realised that one of those national anthems may have been the Brazilian national anthem because there is a Brazilian flag there. Um, but the match gets going and it is very technical. There, there's a lot of headlocks. Inoki has a killer headlock. Andre can't get out of it and that's how the match starts. Um, and it's, it's kind of like a predictable ending to the match. It's, it's kind of an Andre match in the sense of uh, you kind of have to have an Andre match because if Andre wants to do something, Andre's going to do something. <laughs> it's one of the reasons why he was never World Heavyweight Champion. He'd never need the championship to, to like be a star attraction. But if he won the championship, who was going to get it off of him? No one, was there? Until he wanted to give it up. So it, it kind of had to be an Andre-style match. Um, but he gave plenty for Inoki. And he did a lot of his favourite bumps and a lot of his favourite spots, which made Loki look like a star. You know that double alarm in the road spot? Yeah. We thought that that's Andre's favourite spot. He loved that spot. I remember reading an interview with Bobby Heenan where he, he was wrestling the Ultimate Warrior. <laughs> he was one of the guys to, to, who was there to season the Ultimate Warrior. And he said... Um, he basically wanted to get clotheslined and tangle himself in the ropes because that's his favourite spot and he gets loads of heat and it's brilliant for Andre. Anyway, Warrior comes off the ropes the first night, 85 mile an hour, bang. And he said, yeah, Andre go, boom. Anyway, he falls back in the ropes. And he said, this is going to be interesting. So the next night, different town, 125 mile an hour, bang. And Andre goes, lands in the rope. Anyway, it says, well, it's not going to go on like this. Anyway, the third night, Warrior comes off the ropes 200 mile an hour, and just as he gets to Andre, Andre puts his fist in his face. <laughs> Dropped him like a sack of spuds. And he turned down to Bobby and went, he'll learn. It's <laughs> one of my favourite Andre stories. But anyway, yes, um, this match is actually really good. Technically sound. Um, moves along quite nicely um, and you kind of could predict the ending I don't think we're going to cause ourselves any spoilers from 1974 are we? No. Uh, so the match kind of deteriorates into a brawl and it ends up in a count out um, which Andre loses obviously it's Inoki <laughs> and I was kind of intrigued it's like so who's jobbing here? It turns out no one was going to job here um, Andre's up the count out, which is about as best as you could do. But there's some incredible spots in this match. At one point, Inoki tries to get a side surfer, side surfboard on Andre, all seven foot one, 350 pounds of Andre, and nearly succeeds as well. That's kind of the thing lightweights used to do. And, you know, like we said, Andre is really at his peak. He's moving really quickly. It's a proper wrestling match, which you don't normally expect from Andre. And the whole thing goes for like 25 minutes. It's no joke of a match. It's... No. <laughs> it's like you could stick this on a New Japan show now and people wouldn't be disappointed by it, would they? 
no, you it would fit right in. There's it's it feels New Japan before like any of us had actually seen New Japan. <laughs> well, it was New Japan because it was 1974. No, yeah, I'm, right. I'm talking about like we weren't watching wrestling at this point. Well, no, I had I was exactly oh no, I had been oh hang on 1974. I well, I was born. <laughs> I wouldn't have watched New Japan by this particular point, but yeah. But you could you could point at this and be like, oh yeah, that's New Japan because it's got that New Japan style to it. Yeah, definitely. Like the modern equivalent would be like Zack Sabre Jr. versus um, Adult Star, like you know, those matches that they have in the G1. Um, I don't think Farley could go 25 minutes though, really, in the, at this particular level. But Andre was wrestling genius, you know. People don't give Andre credit for his wrestling mindset. He was one of the smartest men in the industry. And he knew how to make everything work for him and his prison opponent. But there you go. Well, Inoki's kind of like got that that style is still there, isn't it? And it's perfect for this type of wrestling match. If you're wrestling a big attraction, it it works because you can break the big attraction down. You don't look you don't look stupid, do you? You don't look like you're gonna get wheeled around the ring. Yeah, this is this is the thing. Throughout the whole playlist, Inoki's style is very much consistent. Like there's new moves and new motions thrown in, but there's there's a very deliberate way in which he does everything, and how he transitions through the stages of a match to up the ante. the The spirit of Anarchism is very damn strong from the get go, and it runs throughout the playlist. Absolutely, definitely. In fact, let's just move on to our next match on the playlist, which is. Oh, Big Cat Ernie Land versus Antonio Inoki again. The, what happens when the immovable force meets the immovable force? <laughs> <laughs> Big Cat Ernie Land, um, again, a guy I've heard a lot about. Very rarely seen any of his wrestling stuff. Um, but, you know, he was uh, a Super Bowl winner with the Kansas City Chiefs. One of the revolutionary defensive players in the AFL and the NFL at the time. And just didn't earn enough money playing football. So in the offseason, he started wrestling and was a very, very capable wrestler and a very big draw until, you know, the end of his football career in wrestling just took over. Um, he was uh, an exceptional professional wrestling talent, as you see in this match, because they have a straight up wrestling match. And it's a very technical match to start with. Yeah, it kind of follows the trend of the matches we watch, where it's there's a lot of grappling, and then it just kicks into another gear, and it just becomes supremely competitive. Like much like you again, I haven't had the chance to watch as much Ernie Ladd as I'd probably like to, and it's just yeah, you can see why he was one of the top draws because he's matching Inoki in Inoki's sort of playground. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, uh, Inoki. Uh, sorry. Uh, Big Cat was a serious athlete and, you know, he was a world-class athlete. And so you put that into the wrestling ring, he's always going to be good. Um, but, you know, how many ex-football players have we seen have been a bit lumpy, <laughs> shall we say? And Big Cat, I mean, is anything but lumpy. He can move, he's got the size. There was no wonder he was a massive star. Yeah, he had every tool you could need, and he could move. He didn't give off the generic shoulder charge football vibes. He was grappling and 
you seemed smart beyond what you'd <laughs> expect from someone who'd come from another spot. I would, I would also point out neither of these two were jobbing. Let's be honest here. <laughs> oh God, no! This is, <laughs> as you said, it's the unstoppable force versus the unstoppable force. There's no immovable object. These two are just <laughs> like going hell for leather because it's like. Oh, I'm. It's my spotlight. My spotlight. My spotlight. <laughs> and it's like, and you and the fans can tell. You know, fans are not stupid. I'm not sure where this was from. Oh, Cleveland Arena in Cleveland, Ohio. Ah, this, this is uh, John Moxley territory. Um, but it's for the NWF World Championship. It's um, two out of three falls, and the opening fall goes to a double count out, which is a bit weird. <laughs> but instantly the fans realise, hey, we're going to get screwed. <laughs> because if it's a double count out in a two rest of two or three formats, that means that someone's got to win both falls and neither of these two are going to drop a fall. So even the fans had worked out that this was going to be a bit rough for a finish. Having said that, once they cleared the detractors out of the ring at the end of the first one, because they did chuck all sorts of rubbish in the ring at the double count out, they did not like that at all. Um, and, um, once they got all the ring out, they got going again, and the fans really got behind Inoki and turned on any lad to an extent, not completely. So, you know, the, the psychology of this match is perfect. It's just that they kind of booked themselves into a corner with it. Somehow I don't feel quite as cock-blocked by the sort of scruffy finishes because of the action. Like, sure, I hate it when, like oh, neither side wants to lose because losing appears to be jobbing, but I don't feel quite as short-changed as I normally would in scenarios like that. I'm not sure if that's another Inoki specialty. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I mean, it's like, as long as you send them I'm happy, that's kind of the thing, isn't it? And it is just like, it was a thing in the 1970s, you know, it, no one came up with really clear, definitive results on a regular basis until the 1990s, which sounds stupid to us now. Because <laughs> people lose matches all the time. Like Tessie Nato probably loses more main event matches than he wins. And he's still one of the biggest stars in New Japan Pro Wrestling. However, the draw for Nato is the story to the win. That doesn't matter, so it doesn't matter if he loses. Back then, a star the size of Ernie Ladd and a star the size of Antonio Inoki, neither of them would give him an inch when it's considered to book him because that would not be considered weak. I did read a story from um, the oh, truth of the um, oil truck Texas, and I can't remember his name. Oh, um, used to be um, Jake Cave is manager in WWF. I can't remember his name. Anyway, he wrote one on his website um, uh, about Big Cat Ernie Lamb when he was wrestling in um, Florida. And the Briscoe brothers, not not Jay and Mark, Gerald and Jerry, <laughs> were um, they were the bookers in Florida, and Ernie was the TV champion, and they come to an impasse, and um, they said, "Right then, we'd like you to leave the territory." And Ernie said, "Okay, I'll drop the title, but I'm not dropping it on TV. I'll drop it on on a house show." Anyway, so. He decides to drop it on the high show. They're doing the house show match, and he looks up into the rafters and sees a camera with a red light on. So they're obviously filming it on TV. So it's going to get to the agreement. 
So he grabs his money and he leaves <laughs> with the belt. He didn't drop the title. He just gets counted out, takes the belt with him. Anyway, they, Gerald and Jerry catch up with him at a 7-Eleven where he had a flat tire. And he was waiting to, to get his tire fixed. And for reasons best known to themselves, whilst he's trying to fix this tire, tire Jerry Briscoe goes around the front of the one side of the car to the front, and Gerald comes up behind him. So Jerry Briscoe goes for a double leg takedown because you know he's an amateur wrestler. And Big Cat wheels up with the tire iron. Unbeknownst to him, Gerald's behind him, gonna take him from behind. So of course he wheels back with a tire iron and bangs Gerald in the head and knocks him out cold, and then swings down and catches Jerry and knocks him out cold, and then drives off. <laughs> which is there you go that's, that's the key master is this don't do across any lap um well that was the kind of wrestling politics they had back then that was the deal you know and he didn't want to be seen as a weak draw and it would have cost him money if, it was, if he'd lost on tv and it was not good for wherever he was going next so you didn't lose on tv there was the famously the honky tonk man in the 80s told Vince McMahon, I will not be losing on TV. <laughs> as simple as that. You know. So it's, it's, it's a match very much of its time because of that politics. But it makes for an interesting finish. And, you, and it's that New Japan thing again of a slow, steady start. You can see where Hashimoto and Akada get their style from, can't you? Slow, steady, yeah. technical start that builds up in speed. And then we get to the weirdest match. Oh, the most famous match? Oh. I'm, I'm going to be very honest here. Yes. I did not sit through the entire hour and five minutes of this. I'll be honest with you, you didn't need to. I did, for completion's sake. And there's lots of cool stuff. For those of you who haven't guessed, we're talking about Muhammad Ali versus Antonio Noki. Um, I see yeah, that I can't call this the weirdest match in the playlist because what comes later? Oh no, there's weirder stuff than this. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, this is this is weird. We're at the Centauri Stadium in Tokyo, Japan. You've got Animal Hamaguchi's on the ringside. You've got Carbach at ringside. You've got Angelo Dundee at ringside for Muhammad Ali. It's all of them. Uh, the whole you of people that are there. If anybody wants to do a film of this, it'd be great. Gene LaBelle, Judo Gene LaBelle, the San Francisco promoter and absolute master of judo and grappling is the referee. You know, arguably, Gene LaBelle is harder than Muhammad Ali and Antonio Oki. <laughs> He's the referee. <laughs> um, and then you have this intriguing wrestling match. Stroke boxing match, stroke spectacle, stroke. We don't know what happened. It's it's an old it's an old story. It's been told many times. Guardian done a long read on it, which is probably the best um, thing you could read to figure out what actually went on. And the basic principle of this was Ali kind of thought it was going to be a wrestling match. It was going to be a booked attraction. That was the original kind of idea. Then Ali balked that idea because he didn't want to 
Um, he didn't want to kind of like swindle people out of money because he was a sports figure. He wanted to have an actual fight. Well, obviously, if Inoki was allowed free reign, then Dali would have got murdered in five seconds because Inoki was fairly angry. Um, and Ali's only retraction then would have been a lucky punch. So to negate that, Inoki was only allowed to strike below the waist and um, he wasn't allowed to grapple. He wasn't allowed to like tie up Ali in the ropes or anything like that. He had to go from a defensive position. So as a result of that, Inoki spends 15 rounds on his back, kicking $7 shit out of Muhammad Ali's uh, shins, and Ali only gets one punch in, in the whole 45 minutes of that. <laughs> it's the weirdest thing I've ever watched. Just it because is. it's it's even funny when you've got it on double speed and you're just watching what basically looks like a fucking vaudeville in of like Anoki scooching along on his back and Muhammad Ali just walking around flustered. It's, yeah, that's it. it, it and the funniest thing is people are into this. Like Oh yeah. The crowd is on bloody tender hooks the entire time because I think they're like the rest of us watching are just like, oh shit, is it the round where something's going to happen? And like, I don't want to badmouth it because it's an interesting idea and you've got two like incredible names in sports, but like, why did this happen? <laughs> why did it happen like this? Well, John, there's this thing called money. <laughs> And lots of it. <laughs> it had to be one of the easiest paydays for both guys. You would have thought so, but that's not the way it worked. You're, and as the commentator said in six months' time, you know, Ali ended up in hospital after this because he got infections in his legs. And he nearly had to postpone the match with um, Ken Norton. Jesus. Yeah, you know, it's it, it was not an easy ride for Ali. Um, and it was... It was. It, it was just badly. It was badly executed. Like now, obviously, bad point Mayweather versus um, or White, and that was kind of like how you should have done it. <laughs> you know, it's like have a ridiculous thing. If you're trying to do the sporting thing, it's not going to work. If you're going to do something ridiculous, it'll work fine. You know, and or it's it's difficult to to kind of like it was. It was the 70s, you know, this was worldwide, world, super worldwide world of sports and world of sports on ITV and, you know, Saturday afternoon log rolling from Toronto and uh, the skateboarding world championships from San Francisco. It was that kind of era of, it was still a bit like the 1920s in the sense of um, star attractions doing big things made money. And we're just getting back to that now, you know, with... Uh, Logan Paul in WWE. He's not a wrestler, he's an attraction. You know, and that's um, similar kind of things that are happening in boxing, similar kind of things are happening in MMA, where you, you're kind of getting back to this kind of mentality of two big names will sell tickets. And that's what this was about. It was about selling tickets. It wasn't, I mean, obviously, Inoki was into the idea of like, testing his fighting skills against the greatest boxer that ever lived. Um, and Ali was into the idea of 
promoting his name because he was still like he was still the biggest name in boxing. And it's intriguing to have a commentary team, a New Japan commentary team, all with New Japan um, insignia on their lapels as well <laughs> in 1976. But this was the start of MMA. This was mixed martial arts, as it looked like in 1976. And you had Fallen yeah. Ali. Yeah. And you had Fallen Ali as well, you know. He was taunting him. He was slightly homophobic, to be honest. Um, and what it was, yeah, he was really trying his best to make it a match. But there's nothing Ali can do. The rules favoured Inoki, even though Inoki was, um, you know, hamstrung by what he could do, if you see what I mean. I'm surprised they didn't just let it go to the 15th round and then just let them both stand up and, like, repeatedly twat each other and see who's got the strongest <laughs> uh, Yeah, well, I can say it now. We, there was essentially, that's what happened on a WCW show. He was looking up for a random wrestling review, which is out, which is out yesterday. Um, it, by the time I finish this podcast, the tweets, <laughs> the tweets will have happened. Um, and <laughs> it was um, Big Boss Man, Guardian Angel then, versus Vader versus Sting. Essentially, they just kept going until one of them couldn't stand up anymore. <laughs> that was the rules. They had like 45 minutes of match, and then that went to oh, sorry, 20, half an hour of match. That went to a draw, so whoever got knocked down first lost. I was like, that's, that's kind of interesting. It's a good tiebreaker, I suppose, one way or another, as long as the referee is looking at what he's doing. Mm. Anyway, shall we look, move on? Yeah, because this next one was actually really interesting. So this is, uh, yeah, this is Akram Pahwalan, who was a Pakistan, uh, Pakistani mixed martial artist and wrestler, and he was going up against Antonio Inoki, and this was in Pakistan. Um, and on a Pakistan wrestling show, and again for the NWF title, this was a bit intriguing, really, wasn't it? It sort of really reflects the sort of greater idea that Anoki had for wrestling, because he wanted it to be worldwide, he wanted it to bring people together. And to th- you don't really hear much about wrestling from Pakistan, do you? So the idea that one of the biggest titles in Japan is being defended on a Pakistani show against a Pakistani wrestler is just kind of cool. Yeah. And it's a good match that, again, ends in a predictable way, because is Anoki jobbing? Is he fuck? But <laughs> it's... It's just really quite interesting when you look at it in the scale, like the scope of the wider world, as well as just that it's a pretty decent wrestling match. Yeah, this is the thing, you know, and I think that's the thing is a lot of guys didn't get the credit they deserve because they weren't on Japanese TV or they weren't on World Sports or they weren't on North American TV shows or didn't get to a territory or didn't go to World Japan. They were making a good living in Pakistan, so why would you leave? You know, that's the thing. It's like Marty Jones is a good example. He's of the generation of the Dynamite Kid and David Boy Smith and could have gone anywhere he wanted to. Was very close with Vince McMahon Sr., wrestled for Inoki, tagged with Hulk Hogan and Dinoki, wrestled in UWA in Mexico, was a world traveler, but will give up his job at Manchester Market. And because he always had a living men, and he was making good money in the UK, so why bother? You know, it's this, this, 
there's, a, there's an entire international circuit of professional wrestling, which has some of the best wrestlers in the world that you've ever seen, because they don't wrestle on TV. You know, Terry Rudge was one of the greatest wrestlers I ever saw. And he made his level, made his, made his living wrestling for auto in Austria, for promoters in Singapore, um, wrestling in Hong Kong, wrestling in South Africa during apartheid. Made a living. I'm not saying it's politically correct, but he made a living. And this is kind of what you know he's doing here: is exposing that. And this is Pakistan, so it's ex-British Empire, so it's Mount Evans rules <laughs> as well. That's though, which is kind of cool. Antonio Noki wrestled under Mount Evans rules. Sorry. I just I love this idea that we like Anoki, no matter what you think of him and if you like his style or not, was determined to make wrestling as big as possible for as many people as possible in as many countries as possible. Yeah, he was evangelical about it. It was a religion for him. And, you know, that was, that was a good thing for the time period. There's no way New Japan gets as big as it does without, you know, keep making himself a star. And that's, in that sense, you have to kind of forgive him for never jobbing, really. <laughs> in the sense of, if Inoki's not, Inoki's not the star, then, you know, does New Japan get as big as it is? No, no, it just doesn't, does it? Not for many years to come. No, and, it, and it's the, you know, that match with Ali is what makes the company. It makes it as an attraction. And essentially, you know, the whole company's been built off that match four years into the company's existence and built on the reputation Inoki had in the matches he had the most early years with Carl Dutch and Bill Robinson and those technical dream matches. Shall we move on, sir? Yeah, this next one is quite funny because I've never seen so many people yelling bastard at someone <laughs> as they did at Texas Red. Yes, Texas Red. Red Bastine, as he was known, and other areas. Um, and one of Jim Ross's favourite wrestlers. I know a bit of a Texas, a bit of a wrestling genius. Um, going up against Antonio Inoki in 1978. By this point, the NWF title had kind of been, it hadn't been retired it wasn't far off retirement. I think they retired in 82. And Vince McMahon Sr. developed the WWWF Martial Arts Championship for Inoki, specifically to be defended by Antonio Inoki as the premier mixed martial arts champion to take advantage of the notoriety of the match with, um, with Ali. And Essentially, they, it was a regular wrestling title and it was defended under regular wrestling rules, but the general theory was it was supposed to be a bit more of a, a scientific kind of affair, wasn't it? Yeah, um, it's, it's one of those titles where it's, the name offers a mystique that the wrestling probably won't. No, and obviously the best place to do that is Madison Square Garden. <laughs> <laughs> a crowd not known for their love of technical wrestling. In fact, quite the opposite. They tended to vapor blood, um, and you know, a guy called Texas Red versus a guy called Antonio Inoki. There not being that many Texans in New York or Japanese people in New York at this particular point in time, it, you're a feeling it won't going to go down well. 
I was really. Just the the crowd started like chanting for Inoki to tear off Red's mask, and Inoki kind of obliges, and then he's like, "No, I'm not actually <laughs> going to remove the guy's mask. I've got. I'm a good guy, but I'll give you what you want for a little bit." Yes, they they didn't quite get what they were watching to start with, <laughs> and then when things kind of picked up in pace, they were into it. And Bastine's a very good technical wrestler. Um, I did read that as Red Bastard at first, by the way, when I clicked on the, the video, yeah. and I was just like, that is a very, very <laughs> strong name to have as a rest, and like, oh, it's Bastine. I just Bastine need to get my mind off the gutter. <laughs> yes, especially in 1978. <laughs> you can't get away with that kind of thing. And now we'll be having Antonio Noki versus Red Bastard. <laughs> Which is probably what he called him as they were fighting, because this was yeah. a very stiff match. It was a bit. It was a bit wrong. This one. Um, it all stayed in the ring. And it's, it, again, it, it's about technical wrestling and uh, the science of it as an art. And Bastine is definitely a very good, solid technical wrestler who could kind of go at Inoki's level. Um, um, but even then, you know, he's not. He's not like he's not coming much out, is he? No, it's it. He's certainly not the strongest, but again, Anoki's bringing him through it. Definitely. And it is just like, in front of a crowd that's kind of used to Superstar Billy Graham and Dusty Rose and these outlandish characters, you know, um, even Bruno Sammartino was a stoic character, but he certainly had an awful lot of charisma about him. I'm not saying that Anoki doesn't have charisma. Anoki has charisma to burn. Um, But it's just... It's just the way it is, isn't it? It's just that he's um, he's not necessarily the right person for an MSG crowd, even though yeah, there's a bit is. of a culture shock. Yeah, which is remarkable when you think about that. And then we go to the next match. Should we go to the next match? Yeah, because this this is hilarious to me. So the next match is Tiger Jeet Singh. <laughs> Versus Antonio Inoki for the NWF World Heavyweight Championship in the LA Olympic Auditorium, which is, um, you know, famous wrestling hall down the years where Roddy Piper made his debut as a serious pro wrestler. And uh, who's the who's the special guest? I can't remember. There's a special guest. I think you also had a guy who was in Magnum TA back in PI. But this was 1979, so it couldn't have been. It was a bit too old for that. Um, Obviously, Taguchi Singh and Antonio Inoki was a classic rivalry. This one's a bit different because it's in America rather than in Japan. Um, and this one's really fun because it's like, and, and really a bit odd as well, um, because Tiger starts off by attacking Inoki before the bell and we're off and running. And then all of a sudden, a wrestling match breaks out. <laughs> and what yeah, this, this... Go for it. I was going to say, I'm watching it at double speed now, so I'm reminded of the points and stuff, um, but, which makes it just seem like a Benny Hill match. It's like, do, 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 it's brilliant. It's a lot of stomping. It's Tiger Jeet Singh. There's an awful lot of stomping and no selling going on with Tiger Jeet Singh. I do actually rather like Tiger Jeet Singh. He's one of the, the sort of few classic wrestlers that I actually watched a lot of. It's hard, it's hard to escape him. I, I, he's useless, but he is funny. Um, largely because of his actions. My favourite, I've said this on the show many times before, is the 
the exploding barbed wire match he had with Masayoshi Umeta. Wait, that's a thing? Oh my god, I need to look that up. I had no idea that existed. So, as soon as you need it, do you want me to tell you the results that you've never noticed this existed? <laughs> I you pretty guess. I need... Like, I know most FMW, like, exploding barbed wire matches, but I had no idea that existed. Yes, it did. Uh, would you like me to tell you the result? I mean, that's really funny. I mean, we are talking about 1993. Sure. Is that... Oh, it, it's the most Tiger Jeep sync thing possible. And what happens it's is... It's Anita, so... Um, Anita uh, delivers a DDT. He delivers a second DDT. Jeep sync staggers around, and then Anita drop kicks it into the barbed wire before delivering a Thunderfire powerbomb, and Tiger Jeep sync kicks out on three. <laughs> <laughs> It is by far so the it, most selfish act I've ever seen in a professional wrestling match. It is peak Tiger Jeet Singh in all his glory of horribleness. So back, just back to the match at hand. Like this was, I nearly sent you a message watching this one because I'm like, I love how Antonio Anoki's in a pantomime villain match and he's still just being Antonio Anoki. Yeah, that's it. This like, is the, yeah, yeah, carry on. Because Jeet Singh is like the most villainous villain to ever villain, and then it's just a wrestling match. And you're like, I I find that hilarious because that that's just Anoki in a nutshell, isn't it? You can do whatever you want to Anoki, and he'll still be Anoki. Yeah, that's it. That's just that's that's the thing. He'll he'll still try and collar and elbow you. You can try and attack him with a barbed wire baseball bat, and he will he will try and shift it away on you. That's what he's trying to do. That's his thing. That's where we're at. <laughs> it's not, it's not, it's, it's just, yeah, that's his thing. He's going to have a wrestling match. Whatever you do, whatever you try and do, he's going to try and have wrestling with you. And Tiger Jeet Singh is entirely character-based. You know, there are obvious shortcomings of Tiger. However, the, the Japanese fans love him. And this is why even the, well, they love him in the sense they hate him. And the LA fans really dislike Tiger Jeet Singh, and this works out. But even then, it's like, you know, he's just going straight back to the armbar. Gets jumping behind, you know, he's got he's got a scar on his head from the previous night's match and he goes straight back to number. He's gonna have a wrestling match because that's what he came to do. <laughs> ha, you think you have won by being a villain? No. I am Antonio Ganoki and I've got you in an arm bar now. Yes, that's and it. I will never let you go. No, you will true. never, ever stop Anoki wrestling. No, that's it. Um yeah, and it's like I like Paul Simmons some good matches. Because like um Roy Piper was on out wrestling and he was explaining why they were so good it was because UCLA, um, college um in California, in Los Angeles, kept um film of every wrestling card that was on at the Coliseum. So all the wrestlers would get down to the university library and that's what Roddy Piper did. He sat and watched every show that ever ran at the Coliseum like 10 years with the shows, and that's how we got good. Which is just incredible, isn't it? Thanks. Yeah. And so it's kind of like a mini version of NXT. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's move on, because if we've got one classic rivalry, we, you need another one. And one of the all-time classic rivalries in all Japanese wrestling is Antonio Inoki. 
versus Abdullah the Butcher. Um, what you need to do then is to move it to Mexico and the UWA. And um, you, you take your Abdullah the Butcher and you tag him up with Peril of Wyo, because that's the obvious thing to do. And um, Inoki takes Tatsumi Fujinaki. And then all hell breaks loose. This is by far the weirdest thing I have found in a very long time. And it does not fail to deliver in every way. It's batshit crazy. It's Perro Aguayo just being Perro Aguayo. Abdullah the Butcher at his peak, Abdullah. And Fujinami trying to throw some Dragon Screw Lab Whips in there. And Enoki's going to rock some much. And that's what they do. They all manage to do all the things they do individually, but squared. <laughs> in the greatest clusterfuck of all time. <laughs> just, oh yeah! Oh no! You want you cannot possibly fail to be entertained by this wrestling match. There are um, a I'm guessing I don't know. I'd have to talk to some of the loops you guys, but they were at one of the big venues that UWA used to run back in the 80s. It looks like um, um, it looks like a, a bullfight ring. So I'm guessing it's one of the big shows that they've run. Um, so you're looking at like 14,000 people to watch this horror of a bucket. <laughs> like, how did anyone dream of this up? Um, and, and then it's like, because like Paraguayo's ace, I love Paraguayo. I never really got to see him as a heel back in the UWA. I knew him as a babyface in AAA at the end of his career, and he was just outstanding. And you can see why he made such a good babyface, because he's such a good heel. He's such an annoying little bastard. He's <laughs> being such a dick throughout this match. It's hilarious. It is. And then you've got you've got Fujinami, who's trying, he's the one who's going to get a kick in because he's the young boy. Um, and Abdullah and Perro just murdering. And Abby's having the time of his life, isn't he? He's got a big smile on his face. He's dropping people on their heads and doesn't even need to get the fork out for the first five minutes. <laughs> Oh, it, it's peak Abby. Like, it is. You know, it's absolute minimum to get the most out of them. It's just outstanding. It, it's, it was hilarious because I was explaining, like, Abdullah the Butcher to someone the other day because I'd been watching Abdullah Kobayashi, who was obviously trained and inspired by Abdullah the Butcher. And it's just... And then the next day you popped, I was like, oh, we're doing a playlist with this. And I found an Abdullah the Butcher match. So I was like, oh, perfect. I'm just showing them. It's like, oh, yeah, that's Abdullah. Massive man, very <laughs> good at what he does, and will stab you in the head a lot. Yeah, this is it. Myself and um, uh, Marcus, obviously, last week we looked at Abdullah Kobayashi because he made his late debut two weeks ago, um, and along with uh, Obayashi from BJW, they tagged up with um, Kazayashi for a comedy match <laughs> with the Tamolas from All Japan. So it was like it was like the most plate show thing you could do. Like get two guys from all Japan to tag up with a guy from Ball Orchestra and to get two guys from BJW to tag up with, with you know, It was great. Anywho, um, but yeah, this match this match is just insane. Because in the middle of this brawl, Antonio Inoki decides to go and put an Indian Deathlock on somebody. Because why wouldn't you? <laughs> Then it's like the match ends halfway through the video and you're like, oh, there's still 10 minutes to this. What's going on? And then just the most violent brawl imaginable comes out. Yeah, because it's not about who wins this match, because this isn't a mask match or a hair versus hair match. 
<laughs> it's just chaos. Fujinami's bleeding out of his head. Inoki tries to attack Abdullah with a fork. It's just... <laughs> it's the one time I've seen Inoki break the stoic character to try and murder someone. I, I do have to say that there is some serious sideburns on offer in this match as well between Fujinami and Inoki. And one does have to, you know, give a moment over to the sideburns. They are absolutely outstanding. <laughs> Um, there wouldn't be a true penny show without at least one hair coming. Oh, we have to, really. So we're, we're pre Though a pair of wire does have a well developed pre mullet. It's 82, the mullet hasn't really caught on yet. And uh, Aguayo is really on there. I think Dave Finley and Paraguay were the leading um, proponents of mullet tree in 1918. Anywho. Wait, so, I still can't believe this match exists. Oh, I've it's seen so, it and I still amazing. can't believe this match exists. No, I, I, well, I, I and it's, it's, it's UWA, so you've got two referees, one who's a heel and one who's a babyface. And basically, that's how Fujinami and Oki lose the match because Enoki just attacks a referee because he's in a bit of peak from uh, Abdullah cheating so much. Um, and it, yeah, it's just outstanding. It's just, just absolutely brilliant. Um, it just. You don't understand why it exists. But if it didn't exist, we'd have to book it. Are we, are we seriously need to do more UWA history because there's a bunch of UWA, show, UWA shows that are now on YouTube, thanks to Roy Lucier, the um, curator of classic wrestling for down the years. And we should really have a serious look at some UWA because if it's as good as this, you can't possibly go wrong, can you? No, I, I have high hopes. <laughs> uh, also sponsored by Corona, the beer, not the virus. Um, right, shall we move on? Yeah, we've got two matches left, and oh god, I, well, I'm gonna I'm not gonna be able to stop talking about this match if we don't move on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, to so kind of like round out our New Japan story with um, you know. Obviously, a lot of the big matches aren't available to you on YouTube anymore because they're on YouTube now. But this is kind of like the classic 1980s New Japan Pro Wrestling big match. Peter Takahashi is the referee. In this particular case, we've got everybody's favorite Klansman, Dirty Dick Murdoch, against Antonio Inoki. I, you know, it was horribly racist, and but he was uh, one of the best professional wrestlers of the 1970s and 80s. You can't get away from it. Um, but, you know, everyone loved Dick, but he was horrible. What can you do? <laughs> um, and boy, could he wrestle. Oh, he could wrestle a streak. So he was perfect for an Oki. And whoever thought this up was a genius, and he was probably an Oki, let's be honest. Because Dick Murdoch could not have bad matches. Well, he could have bad matches when he tried. Sometimes he would go out of his way to have a bad match just to annoy the power. But, in this particular case, he's on. And in Oki's on. And it's go time. And these two have an outstanding match. And you kind of see where the 80s style of New Japan Pro Wrestling is going to head. This is what you, I'm guessing this is 83, I would guess, 84 maybe. Um, and, but this is just outstanding. This is what New Japan would become in the 80s. This is the, you know, you've got a commentary crew, you've got Peter Takahashi's referee, Dick Murdoch is selling his art out for Renoki, this is where we're at, isn't it? 
it's it's peak classic New Japan with two great wrestlers having a great wrestling match with a lot of selling and a lot of just heavy sort of like the heaviest emphasis on grappling and nastiness in certain places. It's just yeah, as you said, it's the peak example of what early ni- uh, sorry, early nineties, early eighties New Japan was. Yeah, it's if you want to I'm going to say, if you want an example of what a great house show should finish with, this is it. Red Hot Babyface, from New Japan anyway, Red Hot Babyface, technical wrestler that can really go and make a match work and give them 25 minutes and they will tear the house down. Well, I didn't even go 25 minutes, this went 16 minutes, but that's still pretty long for the year, isn't it? You bear in mind, how long was, how long was Hulk Hogan going in, in main events against Iron Sheep? What, 10 minutes? You know? um, I mean, technically, Hulk Hogan might have had a reason to cut some of those matches short. <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. But, you know, it's like Flair was, Flair was going 60 minutes with everybody, but Flair would go 60 minutes with the drain pipe if he needed to. But, you know, this, this is just kind of like Murdoch really goes after the knee. There's lots of stories to the actual individual match. There's a lot of technical wrestling. It's super smooth. It, but it's still stiff. It's still a it's still a pro wrestling match. You know, it's it's still a sporting event. That's the key thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's very much anarchism. It's and it it's the perfect way to end off a house show for New Japan. It's as you just said, it's got everything you'd want to send people away satisfied. Yeah, definitely. And that's it. And then, well, we have one match at the end. It's it's from the WWE playlist because obviously cut very, very short. It's only one minute and 47 seconds. But I remember this match. Um, being a WCW fan as a younger person, as a male of 20s, when this match happened. And Steve Regal, William Regal as it was then, uh, or Steve Regal as it was, Stephen Regal, I should say, Lord Stephen Regal, along with uh, William Dundee, or Bill Dundee, as we know him. <laughs> Um, and it, it's it's just a little flash of what it what it could be, um, and I kind of wish they'd given them more time. But I don't think the WCW crowd, even though the WCW crowd liked their wrestling, they just didn't have the patience for this. But it, for me, it just brought the wrestling style of Inoki full circle because he was trained by Gotch, he was influenced by Robinson, and here he is with the last great like Lancastrian wrestler, even though you know Regal's from he's he's from he's from the West, he's from um Stoke, but he's 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 a Lancashire wrestler. He's from Blackpool last week. You know, he, he would suggest that Blackpool combat but, you know, but he's like that Wigan style Regal was a guy who learned from those guys who learned from Mike Jones who was another snake pit guy. He was one of those guys. And uh, Inoki was one of those guys, and you get to see these two go at it on a level playing field for an American promotion. And this kind of wrestling that would kind of fallen out of favor. But you look at the way AEW promotes wrestling now, and it's what it's Inokiism in many, many stretches stiff, hard main events between wrestlers who are character, yes, but the wrestling comes first. 
New Japan has kind of stopped being a, a strong style promotion. It's more of a King's Road promotion these days because of Okada and because of Tanahashi and, and Ishii and even Jay White, they tend to favor stories over sports, sports. And that's kind of what's made them a draw again. But Strong Style is still a major player in a lot of what American wrestling is concerned with, a lot of what British wrestling is concerned with. Certainly, Progress is a Strong Style promotion, but it's always kind of promoted itself as the Strong Style promotion in the UK. And, you know, AEW is essentially a Strong Style promotion. I'd argue more than what Ring of Honor was. Ring of Honor was always kind of a King Trope promotion in that, in that strong story sense. They promoted themselves, you know, like the Wolves promoted themselves as American Strong Style. But really, ROH was kind of aping what all Japan were doing um, and Noah were doing. Whereas AEW is really a strong style promotion. Brian Danielson and Eddie Kingston, you know, he says he's, kind of, he's, he's King's Road. It's kind of, he kind of wrestles like a strong style guy too. It's, there's so much of that in Oakuism that's kind of bled through into modern professional wrestling before we even talk about the legacy of MMA because. UFC just simply does not exist without Antonio Noki. Dana White would be a venture capitalist without Antonio Noki. What did you think of that match anyway, John? Battered on. This is quite a famous match, and I, I remember Regal talking about it a lot because he was determined that if he was going to go out, he was going to be put to sleep, and Noki at first didn't really want to do it, and then about 10 seconds later, it's like, oh, and I'm out. It's just, <laughs> Regal gives a shit. And yeah. he understood he was in the ring with. And he understood just how, like, these two would have been perfect opponents if they'd had the perfect, like, the perfect scenario to do a match. Which he unfortunately didn't. Because they've both got this sort of admiration for, like, technique and sports and wrestling and even in the the tiny clip you see here you can tell just how much respect regal has and just yeah it's over in a flash because regal's like right put me to sleep <laughs> yeah no it's 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 good it's solid and i can remember it being better than you know in okay reputation i've never seen i've seen rookie wrestling snippets back then but you know the internet wasn't around back so I've never seen him, I've never seen a full match of his. I've seen bits and pieces on WC television, WCW television, and I knew his reputation. But, you know, he was like, the thing is, like, back then, as a fan, I was kind of into the junior heavyweight thing. And, like, you know, you expected Japanese wrestlers to be like Tiger Mask and Justin Weiger. <laughs> and then here comes this guy who's very methodical. It doesn't quite ring the same way, if you see what I mean. Like Fujinami's Fujinami's exciting compared to Inoki just because Dragon's through leg whip for a start, you know, he's got loads more maneuvers. But Inoki isn't about maneuvers, it's about how you put the maneuvers on, how much style you have, what you know, it's about making it seem like a real sport. And that's the kind of thing that Inoki made it made made wrestling become. You know, it made, he made wrestling take himself take itself seriously again, which I'm not sure uh, wrestling could in the period of time that he was active. 
Oh, it was certainly an uphill battle at times. Yeah. Especially considering he's pushing for spots in a character era. Well, well, an American character era. Definitely. You know, and even in Japan, I mean, Baba, Baba in the 70s, it was character-led wrestling. He's wrestling Abdullah the Butcher. You know, he's wrestling... Abdullah's wrestling the Destroyer. You know, it's, it's very character-led. There's lots of blood and violence in AJP, AJW in the 70s. AJPW in the 70s. Um, it isn't until the 80s where he starts to be more... He starts to take the company in a more serious direction. But there you are. Have you anything left to say about Antonio Inoki, John? I was I was worried when like you brought me on for this one because like Anoki is a wrestler that I've always been aware of. I've seen plenty of matches of, but there's never always that much to say because Anoki was the wrestler before that moniker became attributed to Shibata because everything he did he did for wrestling and himself, but mostly for wrestling. Mm. He had this brilliant vision that he wanted to fulfill and he took it like more seriously than some people take life like as you as you said earlier it was almost evangelical to him and you get that just from this playlist alone looking at how he carries himself he presents himself how he operates no matter who he's against like if you want to see someone firm in their beliefs about how wrestling should be and how wrestling should be Anoki had that and whether you like the style or not he has had a shit ton of influence he built one of the most successful companies in Japan now he it's just yeah his style is never going to be for everyone it never was I just think yeah the wrestling world is probably better off a lot better off for his influence. I can't say much better than Christ, that. that sounded really pandering, didn't it? It did, but it's not wrong. It's like we could sit here and talk about the mistakes he made. And he is a promoter, he was as a wrestler. But a lot of New Japan was built on his will. Like his sheer determination to make professional wrestling respected from entertainment and sport. And he dropped some climbers. He didn't push the younger guys. He didn't give enough space to the junior heavyweights. He is not half the promoter of Giant Babble was, but Giant Babble isn't a quarter of the wrestler that Antonio Dempsey was. You know, I also want to have some of the weirder fucking stories we have in wrestling without Inoki. Exactly. That's the thing. It's Nobody like... else was trying to wrestle in North Korea. <laughs> <laughs> no. That is one of the thing. weirdest stories in wrestling history, and it wouldn't have existed without Inoki. No, or even the entire possibility of a wrestling match between Idi Amin and um, Antonio Inoki, which was a serious rumour. Because it's Inoki, so of course he's going to have a wrestling match with Idi Amin, well-known dictator. You know, it, he was... There. He was an absolute, just over level of a human being. And it's like, the Ali thing is kind of, the, you know, Ali, growing up at the time, Ali was a different type of person. He was superhuman. Like, he was a presence in the world that you just don't have anymore. You know, the heavyweight champion of the world now, 
appears on wrestling shows all the time, whoever it is. I mean, obviously, we just had um, Ash of the Castle and uh, the Product World Heavyweight Champion showed up there to sing a song. Whereas Ali in the 70s, Ali had the hope of the world on his shoulders. It was a whole different thing. You know, um, it, you just can't, I can't tell you how important Muhammad Ali was to culture in the Western world. And Antonio Inoki was every bit of his equal in Japan. You know, he was every bit, but the, the, the actual presence of Antonio Inoki as a human being is an entirely different thing compared to sports figures of today. Or you just don't get people that come along like Inoki now, even in wrestling, that just transcend. Gary Danielson is probably the only guy that transcends professional wrestling as just a professional wrestler who's not interested in uh, movies or TV or anything else, but just wants to be a professional wrestler, Brian Danielson is probably the only person that's transcended that entire occupation to bring it to an art form of mutual respect around the world in the same way Noki has. And he doesn't have the same depth that Noki has. Do you understand what I mean? It's difficult to explain. Like, the Rock's the Rock. He's the biggest star in the Western world. But he wasn't the biggest star in the Western world just purely through wrestling. I do feel sorry for anyone who logged onto Twitter the day he died and was probably just had no idea who this was and they were just bombarded by the continuous clip of Anoki slapping about 30 wrestlers. Well, yeah, that's true. But it's, it's like, that's another part of his thing. That's a part of his legend. I don't want to use the word shit because it's not, it wasn't a shit. It was something he truly believed in. And I think that's the other thing as well. We talk about wrestlers who believe in their gimmick. Oh, the best wrestlers are the people who are just an extension of themselves. Inoki, well, it wasn't a gimmick. He was Inoki. <laughs> that was the thing. You know, that's what makes him so believable as a sports star was because he was a sports star. And he believed he was a sports star. Whether we believed he was a sports star or not is irrelevant to the whole situation because millions of people believed he was a sports star. And that, that what more compliment can you make for a professional wrestler? But then, have you anything left to say, John? No, I think you've hit it. Right then, I guess we should we should call it a day, and we should lay to rest Antonio Inoki, the biggest star of Japanese wrestling since Ricky Dozo. And that's a big statement to say. All right, then. Thanks for someone much. you don't want to piss off if you don't want to get your head stomped in. <laughs> very true. I was going to go the entire podcast without referencing that, but I can't resist it because it's still the greatest example of why you don't piss off a wrestler. True. That's a, you look at Antonio the Great. No, Antonio Noki versus... Uh, it was Antonio the Great, wasn't it? Anyway. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not pleasant. John, where can we find you on the internet, sir? You can find me at John Deathman on Twitter. That is the gateway to hell. It will lead you to my ramblings, my occasional picture jokes. And yeah, you can find me on Patreon at Deathmatch Digest, which will give you twice a week pieces into current and past deathmatches. You should go look at that. It's really good. 
Thank you very much for listening to me. My name is James Trupney. You can find me at Sheriff Star on Twitter. You can find us on The Troopney Show on Twitter and on Facebook and on Patreon. We keep The Troopney Show free for, for everyone. I am on the Random Wrestling Review this week as well. If you want to go listen to the boys over there, I'm with Ben and Sam. And we're talking about WCW 4 Brawl 1994. The one that Hogan was oh. on, thank Christ. <laughs> Next week, we might be back with New Japan Pro Wrestling because tomorrow morning... At 9 a.m., there is a main event between Jay White and Tamatanga for the IWGP Heavyweight Championship of the World. That sounds like something we should be talking about. We'll speak to you next week. Take care. Bye.